Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of the Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the Weekend Edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. A big story that broke this week, and it's something that we always knew that was happening. Ultra-rich Americans paying little to no taxes, even as their wealth was increasing. ProPublica obtained IRS data on the top 25 richest Americans and how they maneuver the tax system by claiming very little taxable income, borrowing money, or reporting investment losses, all to offset paying taxes. For more on how billionaires like Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, Warren Buffett, and others sometimes get away with paying zero in taxes, we'll speak to Jeff Ernsthausen, senior data reporter at ProPublica. So our first story is about a very basic concept in some ways, um, which is that uh, you and I, when we work to live, we earn wages or salary. Taxes are taken automatically out of our paychecks every month. The ultra-wealthy are not in the tax system in the same way. So the bulk of their wealth as it grows, it's not taxed until they choose to do something like, say, sell stock. So they can accrue vast wealth, which is really like the equivalent of income for us, um, and not pay taxes on it. And so you mentioned in some years, billionaires have managed to pay nothing in federal income tax. Jeff Bezos paid no income taxes twice in 2007 and 2011. Elon Musk paid nothing in 2018. And in recent years, billionaire investors George Soros and Carl Icahn uh, and Michael Bloomberg uh, have all paid nothing in income taxes um, in, in some years. And so the kind of main finding uh, that we were able to, to produce um, is that if you kind of take the entire group of the top 25 richest people in America and look at their uh, wealth growth over the past, over a five-year period um, and look at how much they paid in taxes, uh, you get that they grew their wealth by $400 billion over the five years from 2014 to 2018 and paid only a fraction of it, uh, 3.4% um, in federal taxes during that time. And for comparison, you know, the average sort of typical American who, who takes home a wage pays about 14% um, on their income taxes in those years. Yeah, the disparity in all that is huge. And, uh, you know, obviously the big question comes, how do they get to do that? One of the couple of things that I see is a common theme, obviously, and you mentioned it, right? The income, it, you have to report income to be able to be taxed on it. So a lot of times what these do is, um, you know, you report losses on investments or you borrow a lot of money. You don't have to pay income taxes on that stuff because it's not technically income. That's right. I mean, a good example um, in terms of um, you know, not taking income would be someone like Warren Buffett. You know, Berkshire Hathaway sort of famously doesn't pay dividends. And so as the stock price grows, uh, dividends aren't paid out. So Warren Buffett's not registering you know, income uh, for tax purposes on it. Um, and so he has a, a very low rate when you consider how much he's paid in taxes um, compared to how much his wealth's grown uh, in recent years, um, which is, you know, tens of billions of dollars. Going back to the other notion of, uh, you know, borrowing large sums of money, we see a lot of these big companies, uh, CEOs and everything, a lot of times they're saying, hey, well, I'm only going to take a $1 in my salary for this year. And to a lot of people you know, hearing that saying, oh, well, they're, you know, they're not uh, cashing in all sorts of amounts of money, but, you know, it just doesn't really work out that way. They're not taking that income, so they're not paying the taxes on that stuff, but they keep growing their wealth in other ways. Yeah, that's exactly right. And 
you know, like with other assets, you can borrow against uh, wealth, right? So in some sense, you know, folks who are uh, in the highest wealth stratum, they can borrow against things like shares of stock, um, which several of the folks in the top 25 did uh, in in the past uh, decade or two. So, um, and you sometimes see that come out actually in disclosures from the SEC. And so from that, we know that uh, Elon Musk, for example, borrowed tens of billions of dollars um, or pledged uh, tens of billion dollars of, of Tesla stock uh, in order to borrow money. So even though it may not look like income, there's still a way, there's still a way to access that uh, value. In your findings and all of this, you, you guys were able to access a lot of IRS information, kind of raw information, and you were comparing that to other data that we have, uh, data from Forbes about how a lot of these people grew their wealth, and you came up with a new number, something that you guys were calling a true tax rate. Basically, they're increasing their wealth so much, but they only paid this amount in taxes, and when you look at that number... I mean, that really kind of paints a picture of how much they're actually paying compared to all the money that they're making. Walk us through some of that. Yeah. So we did we did two stories uh, came out today. One um, was looking at the sort of traditional, uh, you know, rates uh, that that you that the IRS might publish, you know, uh, income or taxes divided by income, basically, to get a to your tax rate. Um, interestingly, the ultra wealthy pay a relatively low rate uh, as far as that's concerned as well, because most of their uh, income is in the form uh, is in forms of income that are taxed at a lower rate, like capital gains. But it's not capturing the whole picture because you really have to take a look at how much they're able to, you know, really bring in and add to their, you know, buying power to their you know, influence in society, things like that, that are influenced by your wealth. I and mean, when you take that picture, when you look at the sort of unrealized gains as well as, as sort of traditional income, you see that it's a really small fraction for, for them as a group in terms of what they pay in federal income taxes. And for some individuals, it's incredibly small. Walk us through some of those names, because uh, you mentioned Jeff Bezos, Warren Buffett, Elon Musk. Give us a few numbers, if you can, with how much they're really paying when you work it out this way. Yeah. So, if you go back to 2006 and you look at how much uh, Jeff Bezos, for instance, um, how much his wealth has gone up, it, it went up something on the order of uh, you know 130 billion dollars. Um, and in that time, he paid uh, you know one I think 1.4 billion in taxes, and it sounds like a lot, but when you sort of divide that by 130 billion, it's only about one percent um, that he's paying on his on his wealth growth. Um, so it can be a strikingly low figure. It's uh, actually even lower if you look at, at Warren Buffett, um, who has a very, uh, who takes very low income. Yeah, and Warren Buffett's been one of those proponents for higher taxes on the wealthy. I think you had a great number in here. You know, of these twenty-five top earners that you guys were able to look at, their worth rose a collective four hundred and one billion dollars. This was from twenty fourteen to twenty eighteen. They paid a total of thirteen point six billion dollars. It's a lot of money. But when you put it all together, it's really only 3.4% of, of that amount, of the amount that their wealth grew. So very little in comparison there. I wanted to work in some of the discussion around taxes when it comes to politics and all that, because we had been hearing that from the Biden administration wanting to raise taxes on, uh, on wealthier Americans, also on corporations that are making billions of dollars. You know, we've been hearing a lot about that. How does that work into this conversation? Mm-hmm. Well, for you know, decades, the conversation about uh, taxes has been kind of dominated by marginal tax rates, right? Um, 
but those rates are only going to capture uh, what happens when people do take income. Um, and so, uh, you know, some some folks who are in the uh, the, the top of the wealth distribution, these these really uh, wealthy billionaires, um, you know, they'll be affected to some degree by that. But it's not going to change much of the picture when we talk about how much they're paying in taxes versus their wealth growth. Um, some economists do think uh, that uh, uh, many economists think that uh, the you know corporate taxes are ultimately paid by by individual people, and if you distribute that, most of that falls onto the uh, shareholders. So, insofar as there's moves on the corporate tax rate, um, that would uh, be more likely to be sort of raising revenue, at least indirectly, off of this group. You made mention in the article as well about taxes being paid after somebody passes away, and how. Even then, a lot of uh, people's estates are able to skirt paying a lot of the taxes and, and passing on that wealth to their heirs and all of that stuff. And obviously, there's all sorts of loopholes all over the place, but that just kind of figures into all of this. Even in death, people escape paying a lot of these taxes. Yeah, there's an entire industry around uh, wealth management, and a lot of that is geared towards um, figuring out how to sort of minimize uh, tax burden, right? Um, and so there are complicated sort of trust that you can set up um, if you are interested in trying to move a portion of your estate without having it um, uh, end up being you know, taxed at the, uh, the estate tax level when you when you pass on. Um, and a lot of these, um, you know, sorts of uh, trusts are only accessible to people on, who are in, you know, in the top top stratum, which is also who's affected by the estate tax, of course. Jeff Ernsthausen. Senior Data Reporter at ProPublica. Thank you very much for joining us. No, thank you for having me. Finally for this week, virtual brands are taking over your favorite food delivery apps. The pandemic has transformed the food industry, and in a time when many restaurants were closing, food brands have proliferated. Big chains and even mom-and-pop restaurants are expanding the brands housed in their kitchens and offering burgers, pizza, and especially chicken wings all coming from the same kitchen, just under different names. For more on the rise of virtual brands and how to spot them, make sure to keep an eye out for all those chicken wing spots. We'll speak to Josh Jezza, investigations editor at The Verge. So a ghost kitchen, which is sort of the better known concept, is basically a restaurant that only does delivery. And so it's kind of like a commissary kitchen, and you might have a couple of different restaurants working out of it. And the idea is that they'll be more efficient, have lower overhead, and be able to operate in this very tight environment of food delivery. A virtual brand is related, but it can be in a traditional restaurant. So you might remember last year, Chuck E. Cheese launched a brand called Piscali's Pizza and Wings. It was not clear at the time that that was Chuck E. Cheese, but people were ordering from it, discovering it was actually Chuck E. Cheese. And so that Pascalis was an example of a virtual brand, something that a brick and mortar restaurant puts up on delivery apps in order to get new customers. Tell me a little bit about Ty Brown and a restaurant called The Bergen, because you focus on him a lot in your article about how he expanded through all these virtual brands. I mean, you know, he started off as one restaurant, but all when all is said and done, he kept adding so many other brands to his thing. I mean, he was running, I don't know, 11 restaurants, maybe more out of just the one. Ty launched his restaurant sort of just before the pandemic and got approached pretty quickly by one of these kind of virtual brand companies 
in his case, I think the first one was Future Foods. And so they offer restaurant owners a menu of brands to choose from. And, you know, it sounded like a great deal. You know, he's already sort of a takeout spot. He's making burgers and wings. Future Foods says, we have these other burgers and wings brands. We'll run them. When an order comes through, you just fill the order. You get a cut of the revenue. So he did it. And, you know, it worked well, sort of helped him get on his feet in the restaurant business. And then he kept adding more and more. Sort of these other companies launched. They started recruiting more aggressively. And so when we last spoke, he was running a dozen or so brands out of this (laughs) one restaurant, opening other restaurants that he was going to open with also a dozen brands. And he's a big fan of the concept. You know, he it's it's instant, instant sales for him. He's been quite happy with it. Yeah, so uh, I, you had a list of them, and I just need to run them down so people kind of kind of understand how many different concepts you can run out of the one kitchen. So he had Chef Burger, Burger Mansion, Hay Burger, Mr. Beast Burger, and then Wings. He had Chicks, Wild Wild Wings, Crispy Wings, Killer Wings, Fire Belly Wings. You know, the list goes on and on. And that's also part of the magic, I guess you can say, about these uh, virtual brands is a lot of it has to do with search optimization. You go onto an app and you're searching for product type, not necessarily product name. So you're looking for burgers, you're looking for wings, you're looking for pizza, and then, uh, you know, whatever else, you know, the menu and everything kind of entices you to pick one at that point. So that's also one of the things that's uh, really key to a lot of these virtual brands is the names of these brands are, are pretty, I guess, familiar enough to know what you're getting, but generic enough just to show up on the search engine. The optimization is a big part of it. If you think about a, a restaurant like Denny's or Applebee's, one of these big chains that have started getting into it, you know, they have wings on the menu, but you don't go to them for wings necessarily. So they'll launch something, Cosmic Wings or Neighborhood Wings. And now they're showing up when people search for wings on the delivery apps. And so, yeah, so Ty's uh, restaurants, they all, I actually found him because I was just scanning Grubhub and saw one of those wing businesses you know, after you've been reading about these businesses for a while, they all start to sound the same. And so I think it was a wing dynasty that popped up and said that seems like it's probably a virtual brand and searched the address and came up with all these others that he was operating out of that location. Why I find these stories so interesting is on on multiple levels, really. So as a restaurateur, business owners, these are opportunities for them to obviously make more money, get names out there and keep afloat, especially during a time like the pandemic. On the consumer side, we're uh, looking for things to eat. We're looking for fast delivery. You don't know what you're getting sometimes. You don't know where, who you're actually ordering from. You see a name, you see a product you want, and you're going for it. So one of the truest tells of all of this, as you kind of mentioned, were wings. Wings are, are experiencing this kind of gold rush moment right now where it's so easy to do. Everybody's doing it. And you're going to see a lot of these things popping up on your delivery apps. That's right. Yeah, wings. Uh, you know, a lot of restaurants made wings already. If they didn't, they're pretty easy to spin up. Uh, and so kind of independently early in the pandemic, a lot of restaurants said, you know, we need extra revenue. The kitchen's sitting idle. We'll launch a wings brand. And then you have the large franchises that got on board. And then you have these branding companies that come along and say, you know, we have 10 different virtual wings brands that you can put up and try to get some of that wings traffic. And so wing sales have really been through the roof. It's been kind of a bright spot for the industry. One of those, one of the stats I heard from an analyst was that, well, restaurant visits declined by about 11% 
the period roughly spanning the, the pandemic, wing sales went up 10%. You know, prices have gone up, wings orders have gone up, everything uh, has gone up, partly because all of these restaurants have launched wing brands. Yeah, and they travel well. Nobody really corners the market on wings per se. And, you know, a sauce here could be the same as a sauce anywhere else. And so that's why a lot of restaurants were gravitating towards that. I did want to mention the other side of things. You know, some restaurants and restaurateurs don't like this trend for a number of reasons. One, the fees associated with apps can get pretty high sometimes. So they're losing some money there. The other part of this, as you mentioned, there's these virtual brand kind of companies that are pitching out these companies to restaurants and things like that. You know, there's some in the industry that are worried that these Uber Eats, DoorDash, which have these kind of arms of their business coordinating these types of things, you know, might start opening up their own kitchens and their own restaurants and kind of, uh, you know, uh, taking out the mom and pop shops and, and regular restaurateurs. There are several concerns that restaurateurs have. And the first one is sort of just the logistical issue that, you know, it's, sometimes it sounds good, too good to be true. You know, if you have 10 wings brands uh, and everyone starts ordering wings from you, you can't actually keep up. You have to hire more people. It becomes more expensive. Maybe your main operation could suffer. Your uh, sort of in-house dining uh, if, when you're trying to fill all these delivery orders. And then the other is this sort of larger strategic fear, which is that in the same way that Amazon competes with some of the sellers on its marketplace by finding what's popular and then making its own version at lower costs, that the big delivery apps will start making their own virtual brands like this or promoting restaurants that pay higher fees and host one of their sort of uh, company-produced virtual brands. Right now, the collaboration has been increasing between the brand companies and the apps. It hasn't quite reached that level yet, but you have Grubhub promoting virtual brand companies, trying to recruit restaurant owners. And so restaurant owners who are more skeptical, the delivery apps are kind of watching that warily. In the end, you know, the kind of food for thought on the future of all of this, you mentioned in the article at the end, is is very interesting and, and I think is true for right now. You know, we had been seeing this trend of farm to table, locally sourced ingredients, keeping it, you know, very chef centric even. And now things with the delivery apps have kind of changed that. As I mentioned, you don't know who you're ordering from, just that you're getting wings and you're getting these uh, flavors and stuff or the same thing for burgers or anything. So the trends of these restaurants are, are changing in this digital world, which is interesting to think about. I think it really raises some questions about what a restaurant is or will be. You know, yeah, you, it feels a lot more like e-commerce where you don't exactly know where it was made or where it came from. What you care about is how quickly it will get there and the price. And so you end up with these situations where you order wings and they're well-reviewed and they'll get there fast. But maybe it's a brand name that was invented by some company in Silicon Valley and it's being run out of a local restaurant that's also running 10 different brands in addition to its local uh, to its uh, main you know, dining business. You don't really know where it came from. Josh Jezza, Investigations Editor at The Verge. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media, at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter, and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
This episode of The Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition.